we have a new president and the first ever female vice president. What comes next for the country, the state, and the region? We'll soon find out. But first, coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. It's still out there in case you haven't heard and you should wear your mask and wash your hands. We'll break down this year's state budget for you. I wish that my worst case scenario in my life was that someone would hand me a $6 billion check. And we'll hear what happened in court this week in the case of a Capital Region man who stormed the U.S. Capitol during the violent siege on January 6th. I've been doing this a long time, and that was about as cavalier I've seen a defendant act. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's start with a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here with Times Union Managing Editor of News, Susan Mahalik, this week to go over some of the top headlines. All eyes were on Washington this week, as now President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris were sworn in at the Capitol. The threats of violence that folks had been talking about leading up to the inauguration at both the Capitol and state capitals around the country seem not to have materialized, and that includes here in Albany. Uh, But overall, how did New York react to the inauguration this week? Well, New Yorkers, I think, seemed pretty optimistic. Paul Tonko, One of our uh, representatives in Washington uh, described it as being a rebirth. And for those of you who follow politics, you know that with the swearing in of the new administration and with the uh, new senators who come on board, that means that Charles Schumer is now the Senate majority leader, which is a first for a senator from New York State. Which I just can't believe. I mean, in all these years of politics and New York's power in Washington, I can't believe that this is the first time, right? I know it's 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 pretty amazing. It's you know, and it'll be interesting to see what happens now because I think many in the country are waiting for, or are hopeful for, a reset and a return to something that seems more normal to them because the Trump years were anything but typical. You can read more about our coverage of the inauguration. Um, Our Capitol correspondent, Emily Munson, has an in-depth article about everything that went down, including response from New York lawmakers on timesunion.com. Moving on more locally, uh, last week we reported on this horrific murder-suicide in the Rensselaer County town of Skodak. Uh, What are the latest developments there? The latest developments are that the um, perpetrator of the crime who did kill himself. Um, His name's Bupinder Singh. Latest news is that the um, teenage girl that he killed was his stepdaughter, not his biological daughter. And this this is just a horrific case of domestic violence. Singh was able to shoot and kill his mother-in-law and his stepdaughter, who was 14 years old, and his wife, uh, 40 years old, she suffered wounds to her arm um, that were not considered life-threatening. 
you know, she fled the home and, and there was just a harrowing scene of her, you know, going door to door, just in a panic, knocking on doors and just running away before people could answer the door, uh, seeking help. The first neighbor whose door she banged on, by the time he got to the door, she was in the street and he was calling 911. Now, New York State Police have interviewed her, but they are not releasing any information. And I was speaking to uh, our reporter, Ken Crow, who uh, has is one of the people who worked on the story. And he said it's typical that state police might not put out any more information because the perpetrator of the crime is is deceased. And oddly enough, um, Singh had been charged and then acquitted. Um, he was accused of rape and then acquitted. It was in 2016 that the accusation came down um, from a woman known to him who claimed that he attacked her when she was incapacitated. Um, and then a, a jury trial acquitted him in 2017. And he had then filed a suit against her, you know, for $850,000 claiming that she had ruined his reputation. And that case is still pending. Um, and I was speaking to Ken about that this morning. And he, he told me that, um, you know, depending on what the estate of Singh decides to do, it might just, it may not go forward at all. Yeah, certainly a tragic story and uh, one that we will continue to follow in the coming days and weeks. It's it's, a, it's just astonishing, you know, um, that these kind of things continue to happen, but um, but they are not unheard of. Now, we can't get through a top headline segment without mentioning our favorite topic, the pandemic. Uh, this week is going to be no different. Um, I think the phrase that really most accurately describes our most recent coronavirus coverage is uh, something that Albany County Executive Dan McCoy said at one of his press conferences this week, which is, quote, COVID isn't done with us yet. Uh, so can you just give us a, a picture of the COVID scene, the pandemic scene this week in our coverage? Well, it, it's still out there in case you haven't heard and you should wear your mask and wash your hands. So the, the situation in, you know, the great, the, the immediate capital region is that we've been hearing that cases are trending downward from a post-holiday surge. However, hospitalizations and deaths are continuing to rise. And the latest tally that we um, have been reporting is that the deaths in the four-county capital region are now over 750. And that's for Albany, Schenectady, Rensselaer, and Saratoga counties. We know that there are a few cases of that UK variant, which is more communicable, and that it is here in the capital region. I believe two cases have been found in Saratoga County, um, and there might be one other in another uh, area in the capital region. And we also know that vaccines are here, but they're also in short supply. So I believe um, that uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo said earlier this week that, you know, of the folks in New York who are now eligible to receive the vaccine, that that is essential workers and people who are ages 65 and over. Um, there's about 7 million or so of those folks. Well, at the rate that we're going, it'll take seven and a half months to get those people vaccinated. New York was supposed to receive 
you know, 300,000 uh, doses of the vaccine um, this past week, but only 250,000 came. So what that means is people who have been fortunate enough to schedule uh, an appointment to get a vaccine, some of those people are getting phone calls to say, hey, we don't have the vaccine. We got to reschedule you. And we know that people are traveling from the immediate area where they live to places as far as Utica and Potsdam to get the vaccine at uh, you know pharmacies where they're able to get an appointment. County leaders are upset about this because it makes no sense for folks from the Albany area to be traveling to Utica because that might take the vaccine away from somebody in Utica who could use it. So it, the system of of delivering the vaccines is still needs to be ironed out and people are very frustrated and concerned about when and where they're supposed to get the vaccine and we're still waiting for, you know, better information. We do know that in Albany there is a mass vaccination site at the University in Albany and and people are receiving their vaccines there but for the member of the of the general public as well as uh, you know leaders in our communities, it's not happening fast enough. Indeed, and you can again read our ongoing coverage of all of what you just mentioned uh, at TimesUnion.com. Susan, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thanks, Jess. It was my pleasure. This week, Governor Andrew Cuomo unveiled his budget proposals. Yes, I said proposals, plural. There were two of them. Which one comes to pass depends on how much money New York State receives from the federal government. Capitol Bureau reporters Amanda Fries and Ed McKinley discussed the particulars this week on our sister podcast, Capitol Confidential. Here's a snippet of their conversation. This year, actually, we didn't just get one budget proposal, we got two for the price of one. Governor Cuomo has been talking over and over and over again in recent months about how the finances of the state are going to be dependent on how much aid we get from the federal government. And that point was reflected in his executive budget as well, because there's one budget designed in case the state gets $15 billion in aid from the federal government. And then there's one designed as what they're calling the worst case scenario, which would be $6 billion in aid for the federal government. And that money would be coming from a proposed pot of $350 billion in Biden's COVID relief package that he's proposed. Although I have seen some reporting out of Washington thus far that they're not expecting to pass that until March, that senators like Mitt Romney have been opposed to this idea because they just passed about a trillion dollar relief package in December, I believe, or within the last few months. So I think to call it the worst case scenario that New York is going to get handed a $6 billion check, I'll put it this way. I wish that my worst case scenario in my life was that someone would hand me a $6 billion check. Yeah, that's. I, I think that's one of the things that I'm kind of hung up on is there was no scenario if New York doesn't get any additional federal aid, correct? Robert Mujica, the director of the Division of the Budget, spoke a little bit about that during his press conference. And he was sort of talking about, you know, here's some of the areas that we would need to cut further if there's less or no aid. And those included, I believe it was education. It was additional cuts to funding to like cities and counties, localities in the state. And then the tax hike on those making more than five million. Although Mujica certainly seemed reticent to fully get behind that tax hike, he was saying that 
they would only be including it in the budget if it was needed to balance the budget. So it was only in the $6 billion version, but not the $15 billion aid scenario. Um, and the reason that he outlined for that was basically that New York is very reliant on the tax revenue from its highest earners. I think he said that the top 5% of people who make the highest amount of money in the state provide 60% of the state's income tax revenue. So they want to be careful about raising taxes on those people in case they would just move away, particularly now that telework is becoming more and more popular. Um, so that was a concern. But interestingly, basically right after he said that, there were reporters like myself who were you know, tweeting out quotes from that. And the deputy majority leader, uh, Mike Gianaris in the Senate said, you know, basically, good thing the legislature is going to raise taxes on the wealthy no matter what. And then um, Majority Leader Andrew Seward-Cousins has, has said the same thing in the last few days. So it seems really clear that there's an appetite to do that, basically come hell or high water. That's probably the most interesting development to keep an eye on throughout the session, I'd say. Certainly interesting to watch that play out, if only because if the legislature does include tax hikes on the wealthiest New Yorkers and includes those in the budget, what will Governor Cuomo do when it gets to his desk? Will he veto it? That's a good question if they can add that, because I don't think that they could add that to the budget without him putting it in there. I think that there's conversation about doing it legislatively, but by law, I don't know if they would be able to add that as a revenue raiser. But we should definitely talk about the proposed revenue raisers for the state budget, because those I think are the most interesting parts of it. You know, the cuts that they're proposing would be to education, they would be to sort of like an across the board 5% cut to the money that the state gives to cities and counties. So there's not a lot of, you know, we're cutting this big flashy program, but the revenue raiser stuff is a little bit interesting. Uh, Governor Cuomo wants to legalize recreational adult use marijuana, and he wants to legalize online sports betting. Those are the sort of the two big proposals. And then there's a couple other little things like, for instance, I think I saw in the budget that they would raise a couple million dollars by expanding the age that people can go crossbow hunting in the state of New York so that kids who are as young as I think it was 15 would now be able to. So the governor's, you know, envisioning that that would bring in a couple extra million dollars for the state. But the big ones are the marijuana and the sports betting. And of course, there's been, you know, pushback. I think I saw a, a statement from Senator James Tedisco, where he said, you know, basically, the governor wants to cash in on, on selling drugs and, and casinos. So there's um, people that are characterizing those revenue raisers as not the best way for the state to be taking in additional funds. Um, but Robert Mika has outlined that, you know, when the markets for adult use marijuana and sports betting have a few years to mature, it would be a pretty significant pot of money. He thinks that sports betting could be taking in as much as $500 million for the state uh, a few years down the road. And uh, the recreational marijuana could be bringing in about $350 million. So that's, you know, pushing a billion, 850 million, that's a pretty substantial chunk of change. And uh, we should add too that they said that about 100 million of the marijuana revenue would go towards a social equity fund that would be used um, to sort of pay back the communities that have been most harmed by uh, marijuana prohibition over the years, those being uh, black and brown communities in particular. 
So obviously we've gotten to um, this deficit and situation because of the coronavirus pandemic. And the governor certainly took a lot of time to kind of outline New York's plan going forward in his budget address. Within the budget, what aspects um, are being funded specifically that address the, the pandemic or respond to implications from the pandemic? The state is already getting a significant amount of money from the federal government as part of the coronavirus relief fund that was passed last year. Uh, a lot of that is going toward Medicaid. There was some that was going to education and then vaccine distribution is getting some too. So the money that, that Cuomo is asking for from the federal government is in addition to the aid and the emergency funding that New York is already expecting or hoping to receive from the federal government. He's basically asking for cash to just help us out of, help us out. So not only just the, the direct price of the COVID, you know, much like if there were a hurricane, you know, you might say, okay, give us emergency funds so that we can, we can build back the things that were directly harmed. But COVID has also led to people leaving the state to economic fallout that has led to less money in tax receipts. Cuomo's basically saying the gov the federal government, he's not basically, he's literally saying the federal government is not only liable for the direct damage, but they have to pay New York for the indirect loss of revenue um, that this disaster has caused. Any other takeaways? I'm trying to think of some of the things that I found interesting. And honestly, it's more of, I have so many questions that are left unanswered when it comes well, to the information that has come out so far. I'm kind of curious, what are your like, top questions that have been left unanswered? I think that's a tough question to answer because I think sort of the point, like since COVID hit, basically everything that Cuomo has done has been to maximize the amount of flexibility that he has to respond. The legislature basically gave him a blank check and said, you know, you're in charge, you can run the show. And I think the through line from that situation to where we are now, you know, he says, here's the budget it's actually two budgets. And it might be totally different if we don't get this money or if we get it late. So really sort of what he's doing is continuing to maintain the flexibility that he's been given all along, um, which makes sense given that, you know, we're still in the middle of the pandemic and there's still a lot of uncertainty. But the big takeaway, you know, there's a picture or a graph in the budget document where he outlines the differences between the $15 billion aid scenario and the $6 billion aid scenario. And this is probably just an important takeaway. He lists the cuts that are included in the $6 billion aid scenario that would be avoided under the $15 billion aid scenario. And those cuts are three and a half billion to education, 0.9 billion in across the board reductions, 0.6 billion in contractual salary increases for state employees, 0.3 billion in other restorations, and 3.7 billion in tax increases that could be avoided, those being the tax hikes on those making more than $5 million a year. After the break, the Capital Region man caught on social media breaking into the U.S. Capitol earlier this month makes an appearance in court. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. 
Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in his conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Aniska Yunaman, who's admitted on social media to storming the U.S. Capitol during the violent siege on January 6th, appeared in federal court this week for a detention hearing. He faces charges of two federal misdemeanors. A federal judge in Albany ordered 26-year-old Brandon Fellows not to leave the region after letting him out on $25,000 bond. Times Union cops and courts reporter Rob Gavin covered that hearing, and I talked to him to find out more. Let's start with your headline. Niska Unaman, who stormed U.S. Capitol, smirks during court yeah. appearance. What What is that all about? To say that he didn't appear to take the appearance with the utmost seriousness, I think would be an understatement. This appearance was in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District in Albany. So this is right down here in Albany on Broadway. And Fellows, who's 26, his name's Brandon Fellows. He is from Niskayuna. He is one of the many people, many, many people who was arrested in connection with the Capitol uh, storming that happened on January 6th. And this was a detention hearing. So you have the initial arrest of him, and it happens on Sunday. The FBI announces his arrest. And there had been, I think Saturday night, there had been an arraignment after, after his initial arrest. And this was a detention hearing, which is essentially a hearing to decide whether or not he should stay in custody or not. Detention hearings in general are very much things in which if you're a reporter like me, this is where you're going to get a lot of your best information sometimes. This is the prosecution telling a judge, this is why this person needs to be locked up. This is why this person should not be on the street. So you're going to hear all the juicy details of someone's criminal case and also their past. The prosecutor, in this case, it was Joshua Rosenthal with the, the Northern uh, District. He laid it out and he, you know, and he basically explained the details of the case. The affidavit had a lot of information as well, which the judge, of course, saw. This was Judge Daniel Stewart. All right, so tell me all the juicy details. What, what did this guy do down at the Capitol? You know, what did they lay out? So Mr. Fellows, he's 26 years old. He's a young guy. And according to the affidavit signed by an FBI agent who obviously was involved in the case, Mr. Fellows basically admitted on social media to a lot of things, including uh, at some point goes around talking about, uh, and and this is his quote uh, on Facebook, according to the affidavit. He said, we took the Capitol and it was glorious. Uh, someone commenting back tells him that they accomplished nothing and that the government was not afraid of them. And fellow says, oh, 
I saw the fear and puts two smiley emojis in there. And then he goes on to say, and they know many of us had guns at our hotel rooms and vehicles. We aren't pissed enough to kill the police or military, but we will fight them and make them retreat. Maybe things will get worse. All I know is the more we are forced and silenced into things that we don't agree with, the worse it will be. So that's very serious comments he's making there on social media, also admitting he was there. But it's not just his word. He also put photos of himself out there. His feet are seen kicked up on the desk of Jeff Merkley, you know, a U.S. senator from the state of Oregon. And uh, there's also pictures of him outside the Capitol uh, with a fake orange beard and a jacket that says USA on it. And he, he spoke to a reporter from uh, Bloomberg News saying, I have no regrets. I didn't hurt anyone. I didn't break anything. I guess I, I did trespass, though, I guess. And then he bragged uh, that his Bumble dating profile was blowing up after he posted a photo of himself. And then I said, did I think I was going to get in trouble? And then I said, uh, no, uh, because the police officers led him to believe, according to him, the Capitol Police officers led him to believe he was not going to face consequences. But he's not just, he's also on TikTok saying he's not a terrorist, but I will be posting more photos as long as the FBI doesn't come get me for walking in and taking photos and saying, have a nice night to the police. So it's just sort of this crazy story that is documented by his photos, documented by his his own statements, you know, his, his, his comments and the fact that, you know, he's got this digital proof of him being there, which is great if you're trying to brag to people and not so great if you're facing criminal charge. What charges does he face? So Mr. Fellows charges are actually misdemeanor federal offenses and, and they include violating a restricted building and violent entry or disorderly conduct. Mr. Fellows' charges are going to be handled in Washington. His case is in going to be in Washington, but his attention hearing was here. He was, you know, he was arrested here. There was some interesting information that came out after he was arrested. And I should mention that Mr. Fellows lives in what the prosecutor described as sort of a, a converted bus or RV, and that he's lived there for the last four years. He seemed to take offense when the judge asked him uh, what he did for a living. And the judge said, I guess you're a, uh, a chimney sweeper. And Mr. Fellows said he thought that was a very derogatory way to refer to his job. He said he manages buildings. He wanted time under the conditions of release to be able to prepare for his job. And at one point, while not saying it was related to his job, the judge is telling him, you can't leave. The, the Northern District of New York, which is basically the Albany area and the other 32 counties, which include the Albany area of the federal court district, right? So Mr. Fellows just chimes in and says, well, hey, you know, what about Western Massachusetts? Can we add that in there? And the judge is like, no, we, we, we're not. He's like, well, I like to go over there. That's on the border. And, and I I do spend time there a lot. And the judge was like, no, um, no, we're not going to do that. So Mr. Fellows did the sarcastic, okay sign, which- That's also I, a, technically a hate symbol, right? Yeah, I, and I've heard that since then. That it's also a white supremacist symbol. I referred to it as a uh, the sarcastic hand signal because I don't know, I know that's what he did. I can report what I saw him do, whether or not he meant it as a white supremacist symbol 
that's something that I, I'd be interested in knowing more about because obviously we know there were many, many people at that incident who were white supremacists, including, you know, some wearing, literally wearing it on their shirts in horrific fashion, not exactly hiding their, the hate on them. So that would certainly be a question to ask, what, what did you mean by uh, doing that? He was a very cavalier appearing defendant, more so than probably any I, I, I can think of. I know there, there are some defendants who've boasted and bragged, but this was, I've been doing this a long time, and that was about as cavalier I've seen a defendant act in some time, particularly when you consider the charges. Misdemeanor notwithstanding, you, you're charged in in connection with an act that has been called insurrection, uh, and the people who went in there have been called domestic terrorists. So to be smirking, it was very unusual. And I, and I don't think it necessarily helped his case in any way. At one point, the judge told him that he wasn't sure if he understood the seriousness of of the issue. So I don't think what Mr. Um, Fellows was doing was lost on Judge Stewart. Uh, I also just feel that the judge wanted to be fair. These are misdemeanor uh, charges and allowed him to be on electronic monitoring. Um, he can work. You mentioned earlier that this entire proceeding, you know, you were watching it and other reporters and I guess observers were watching it, you know, via something like Zoom or Skype. What was distinct about that? Like what, you know, what did you get out of that experience? Uh, generally speaking, when we cover a court appearance and arraignment, uh, a trial, as a reporter, you're in the seats, you know, you're, you're on the benches, um, you're behind the defendant with rare exception. And there are exceptions. Sometimes we sit in the jury box, uh, the judge allows in state court and, and there, there are exceptions like that. But generally we are behind the defendant. So we can't really see the look on the defendant's face. Now, as we're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, court appearances are being held virtually and public access to them is different than it would have been. Without a pandemic, I would have gone there in person. I would have driven down, parked my car, walked in, gone through the metal detector, just sat in there and seen it from the back. And those smirks, I would not know about them unless someone said to me, hey, you know, he was smirking. And I still wouldn't be able to capture it because I wouldn't have seen it firsthand. Watching this as a virtual appearance, our view of the defendant, the judge, and the parties, including the defense attorney and the prosecutor, we're, we're watching them from the front. We're seeing them from the front. The parties are all probably in their own homes or offices. In this case, Mr. Fellows was in the Rensselaer County Jail. My view of Mr. Fellows was from the front. Because of that, I was able to see his facial expressions. I was able to see everything he was physically doing, not just the words coming out of his mouth. I think even if I was in, in the courtroom from behind, I would have absolutely noticed the cavalier notion of it because you just don't hear defendants that lax in their language. And it just sounded like someone who, he sounded like somebody who was, you know, almost being nagged by, by their dad to have to go do something. I mean, that, that's honestly what it, it sounded like. Oh, I guess, I don't know. Like, you know, at one point, he said, uh, are you okay with the circumstance? Then he's like, uh, yeah, I guess. I don't think I can emphasize enough that from appearances, he could not be taking a more cavalier approach. So what's next for him? The next step is going to be, they're going to probably put this, or they will put this on a calendar, and this case will be transferred to Washington. That's where it is. But I will be following it. I'll continue to follow his case in Washington to see what happens. 
That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Albany Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom.